Irregular Words, what we know, what we don't know, and what it means for instruction in your classroom. Hello and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, and we have Patrick Wells helping out with production in the background. I'm very glad to have you with us for this episode today. I hope it finds you happy. I hope it finds you healthy as we enter the home stretch of 2022. Just a reminder that if you appreciate the show, you can always drop a donation supporting the Teaching Literacy Podcast. You can do that by going to uh, Venmo on the business side and donating to at Teach Lit Pod. Again, this isn't a business, but I had I had to sign up that way because Venmo wouldn't let me have two accounts. And then if you also are interested, you can go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on About Your Host, and you can uh, donate securely via PayPal on the website. And a great big thank you to those that do help donate to the podcast so I can manage the, the costs of, of maintaining uh, you know, cloud servers and editing and all that, all those different fun things that help make this podcast happen. So thank you to everyone who has donated. Let's get to today's episode. If you have ever taught phonics, chances are you have ran into the terminology of sight word or high frequency word or non-decodable word uh, or some other term similar to that. In the practitioner world, we tend to use those terms fairly interchangeably, and typically those are referring to words that are irregular in nature. But the research world does not refer to those terms interchangeably. So our guest today is here to explain irregular words, what we know about irregular words from research, and what it means for instruction in your classroom. Her name is Dr. Danielle Kolenbrander, and she is a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Psychological Sciences at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. I learned a tremendous amount uh, from Dr. Kolenbrander, both from our conversation and also from the articles that I read that I interviewed her about. So please sit back and enjoy the episode learning about irregular words and stick around after the interview for my take on the conversation. Dr. Danielle Kolenbrander, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to have you on the show today. We're talking about a pair of articles that you wrote with various co-authors over the last few years. The first article is in the Educational Developmental Psychologist, which is an academic peer-reviewed journal, and it's a review entitled Teaching Irregular Words, What We Know, What We Don't Know, and Where We Can Go From Here, and that was published in 2020. And then just this past spring, you released an article entitled Teaching Children to Read Irregular Words, a Comparison of Three Instructional Methods, and that was in the Journal of Scientific Studies of Reading. So very happy to be talking with you today about irregular words and helping us with some more nuanced thinking around how to approach irregular words and what it means for instructions. Before we jump into it, will you just give us a brief background of your history, research interests, and, and what drew you to researching irregular words? Yes, sure. So I'm a researcher in the Macquarie University Centre for Reading at Macquarie University, which is in Sydney, Australia. And I'm really interested in how children learn to understand what they read. In particular, my research is focused on instruction and assessment of reading, spelling, vocabulary, and morphology, or understanding of word structure. And I've always been 
someone who loves reading, a bit of a word nerd, you might say. And I was interested in it from a very young age. And my younger sisters knew about this because I was always forcing them to do spelling tests. So I originally trained as a speech language pathologist. And I learned so much from that training. But my passion really lay in reading and understanding how people learn to read. And so I went on to do a PhD on the role of spoken vocabulary knowledge and reading comprehension. And that involved doing some research in a school and working in a school. That was nearly a decade ago now. And since then, I've done research in schools in Australia and in the UK. And I've also done a lot of professional learning work with teachers. And I really love working with teachers because sometimes as a researcher, you can get caught up in your own little area of expertise. And I find that working with teachers helps me keep it real because I might come in and say to a teacher, oh, well, the research says you should try this. And then they might say, "Mm, okay, well, I'm not sure if this is going to work. And how do I actually do this? So it really makes me look at the research differently. And I find that I'm learning new things from teachers all the time. So I'm really lucky because I have that combination of research and then trying to work with teachers to see how it works in practice. I appreciate that perspective of yours because it'll be very clear in our conversation, but it's also clear in your articles that I've read is you do have that practitioner orientation, very pragmatic of what will work in real classrooms with real students and real teachers. So in thinking about irregular words, common thought typically identifies words in this dichotomy as being either regular and words like that would be like chip or dog or blimp or irregular as in a word like yacht or does or were or island. Other terminology is very common of decodable or non-decodable. I hear that terminology as well. Uh, But one of the very first things you point out in your article is that regularity or word regularity is not that simple, that it actually occurs on a continuum. So will you talk to us for a minute about the regular irregularity continuum of words? Yes, sure. So as you said, In English, we've got some words like dog or chip, where every single grapheme or spelling matches up to the most common or likely pronunciation for that spelling. For example, in chip, we have the spelling CH or the grapheme CH, which is usually pronounced CH, and then the grapheme I, which is usually pronounced I, and the grapheme P, which is usually pronounced P. So that's pretty predictable. If you know those Spelling sound or grapheme phoneme correspondences, you can sound it out without too much difficulty. But then we also have words like aisle, where almost every single grapheme in that word is not pronounced the most common or predictable way. So that's the other end of the continuum. But we also have words that fall somewhere in the middle, like young, where the y and the m are pronounced according to their most predictable or common pronunciation, but the OU is not pronounced according to its most common pronunciation. So there are actually degrees of regularity within words. So it's not so simple to just draw a line and say, this is completely regular and this is completely irregular. And also when we think about it, it's not just the properties of the words that matter, it's also what a person knows. So for a beginning reader, They might know only a handful of spelling sound correspondences. And so a whole lot of words are not decodable for them at this point. And so you might say, well, those for that child are irregular words. Whereas for a really good reader, an adult who's a very good reader, far fewer words might be irregular. 
it's actually pretty complex. It's not so simple. And if we're running a research study or if we're doing instruction, we do have to make a decision sometimes. I'm going to treat this word as a regular word and this word as an irregular word. But that's that's a bit of guesswork about where we draw the line. Regular and irregular words are actually not as different from each other as we might think. And that's something that you point out in the article is the vast majority of words that even though they they are irregular, they're not using the most common phoneme graphing pronunciation, they are fairly regular. They're not completely irregular. Yeah. I think it was Isle was the word you mentioned, but they do have the majority of the letters in that word are pronounced somewhat regularly. And that has a huge instructional implication because a common practice I've seen is, well, this word is irregular, so we have to just memorize it by sight. And then sometimes we term that sight words, which Sight words are defined a little bit more precise and narrowly in the research literature. So that word's not decodable. We just have to know that this is how we say the word. How might a nuanced understanding of this regularity, irregularity continuum influence that practice of just memorizing words that are irregular? Yeah. So if you think of regularity as a continuum and you think these words are not completely different to each other, they're just different in degree of decodability. So even if a word is fairly irregular, you, at least some of the spellings are usually decodable. So attempting to decode can get you part of the way there. And that's important because I'm sure you've discussed this in your podcast before, but decoding using knowledge of these spelling sound or graphene phoneme correspondences is a really important way of getting the words into our memory and getting the details of those words into our memory. And so when you decode a word, you're starting to form a representation in your mind of that word. And if you see it again, you decode it a little bit faster and then a little bit faster again. And then eventually it's automatic. You just look at the word and you know what it says and you can access the meaning. And then when you do it that way, you have this very detailed and precise representation of the word in your mind. And that makes it just easier to retrieve the sound and the meaning the next time you see it. So that process we know operates for words we consider regular, but if we think that it's possible to decode at least parts of even irregular words, that process might also operate for irregular words. Maybe not all of them, maybe not the most extremely irregular ones, but for the vast majority of words, decoding the word can get you part of the way there. So you don't necessarily need to treat regular and ir irregular words as if they're completely different from an instructional perspective. They might need a, a different approach, but you don't need to treat them as though, well, we can't decode them at all. You can sometimes and often attempt to decode them. So what you're saying is that even a partial phoneme graphing mapping process happens, it's still going to benefit that reader, uh, even if the word isn't completely 100% regular. Yes, as long as they do get to the correct pronunciation of the word eventually. We've all had the experience of, you know, reading a word and later we say the word and everyone laughs at us because we, we didn't know how to actually pronounce the word. Like a common one is the word mauve. I've heard people say mauve before because they, they decoded it and then they got this kind of spelling pronunciation in their minds. Um, but they didn't hear the correct form of the word, so they mispronounce it. And that's not the end of the world if it only happens for a few words. But obviously, if we're teaching students and we're encouraging them to decode an irregular word, we want to make sure that we encourage them to connect that 
decoded form or that spelling pronunciation to the actual correct pronunciation of the word that might already be in their spoken vocabulary or if it's not you need to give them the correct spoken form of the word. Absolutely. Let's take another example of that sort of process and maybe you can break down what's happening cognitively for the student. So let's say a student is reading, I think yacht was a word that we used as an irregular example a few minutes ago. In the word yacht, let's say a student is blending that word and they blend it as e-a-ch-t, which those would be the common regular pronunciations of each of those phonemes. And then the student self-corrects. They're reading in the context of the sentence. They say e-a-ch-t and they self-correct and they say yacht. What mm-hmm. is happening there and and what ingredients have to be sort of present for the student to be able to self-correct in an accurate way? Yeah, so that's a process that is sometimes called set for variability and sometimes called mispronunciation correction. I'm going to use the term mispronunciation correction because I think that just describes what's actually going on there. So it's a bit easier to remember. What you really need in order to be able to do that is, first of all, you obviously need to be able to decode the word. So if they're sounding out, yeah, they've got, they know those graphene phoneme correspondences. They've sounded it out. And then from that point, we have to blend it and get to the spelling pronunciation, yatched. And then you sort of think, well, mm, that's not a real word, I don't think. So what might it be? I know that it is a word. So do I know any words that are similar? And you then might go to your spoken vocabulary and think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the closest thing I can I can find. And what will often help with that is looking at the sentence context. So maybe the sentence would say, I sailed. And then you already kind of have an expectation that the word's going to be yacht. So that will help you to get to the correct spoken form. This is something that some readers do spontaneously. You can do it with regular words and irregular words. But it might also be something that we can teach which is something that my research has has looked at recently. And that's the process of mispronunciation correction. I appreciate your insight on that because I feel that set for variability or mispronunciation correction, um, it's a very hot topic right now. There's a lot of research being published around it. And it's in the research that this is a process that happens, that readers are able to generalize a sort of regular pronunciation to an irregular pronunciation that is actually the correct form of it. And so what is, I think the question left to be answered is what does this mean for instruction? I was actually sitting in a presentation a few weeks ago at a conference and there was a presenter presenting to practitioners about mispronunciation correction. And her take on it was basically, well, when the student makes an error, just wait and see if they, they self-correct. It was really interesting for me to watch because I'd already read your research and and kind of a different take on it in that, well, maybe we can actually teach students ahead of time to be able to learn phonics patterns in a way that they're generalized from the get-go. So we're not correcting an error, not correcting error, seeing the student corrects it, but we can actually prepare them through our phonics instruction to be able to have phonics be generalizable and not just a rigid set of of rules for very tightly controlled conditions. So in your article, you, you talk about three major viewpoints of sight word instruction, mispronunciation correction, and morphology etymology instruction to help mm-hmm. support teaching irregular words. Since we're already talking about mispronunciation correction, perhaps we can just continue on with that one. Okay. Uh, and this is where your uh, study in the the SSSR journal started mm-hmm. to investigate that notion of can we teach students to be 
flexible with the phonics generalizations. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that study, the three treatment groups that you set up and some of the findings around that. Yes, sure. As I said, we were quite interested in the idea that mispronunciation correction could be taught. And there were already a handful of studies about mispronunciation correction out there. Really, I mean, just three or four. So we sort of knew that it was possible and we knew that it was possible as part of a multi-component training program, including things like phonics and vocabulary instruction, because mostly the previous studies had looked at it as one ingredient of a whole training program. But we wanted to know on its own, what effect does it have? And we also wanted to compare it to other forms of instruction because there's very little research comparing different types of instruction for irregular words or words that are more irregular if we're thinking about it in a continuous way. You mentioned sight words before, and I will come back to that now because we sort of have to go through that in order to understand why we chose the training conditions that we did. As you know, sight word instruction, that term is very controversial and the instruction method is very controversial. So in the sort of reading research literature, when we talk about sight words, what we usually mean is any word that a person can read really automatically just by looking at it, which is the ultimate goal of reading instruction. We want a lot of those really automatic words to be in a person's memory. But when you hear people talking about sight word instruction, what they're normally talking about is a kind of um, memorization of the written and spoken form of a whole word. So people often think of it as kind of rote learning, looking at a word, saying the word, and just remembering that word. But sight word instruction can take a whole lot of different forms. Some people have heard of look, say, cover, write, check, which is one form of it. Some people just do look and say. Some people might do look and write. There's a whole lot of different things going on out there. And it's controversial because if that's the main way that you teach reading, then it doesn't encourage decoding. It doesn't encourage students to look at the details of the word as they learn it. And then it can maybe encourage kind of guessing. And if that's the only way that you teach reading, it's really inefficient because you basically then have to learn each word or in theory, you have to learn each word separately and you don't have those decoding skills as a tool you can use to attack a word that you've never seen before. So some people would say you should absolutely never do it. It's a terrible idea. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. So interestingly, there is some research to show that if you teach a small, a very limited set of the most frequent words in that way, actually it can be quite efficient. So if you teach phonics and you're teaching a whole lot of grapheme phoneme correspondences, and you teach a small set of sight words, that can give children access to a wider range of text a bit more quickly. And that's important because we want children reading independently as quickly as possible because we know that the more children read, the better they get at it, the more words they learn, the easier they find it to learn from what they read. So that's what we want. So maybe there actually is a reason to teach a small set of sight words in conjunction with phonics instruction. And if that's the case, then how should we do that? How should we teach that small set of irregular words? That is one thing we were interested in in the study. So we had our mispronunciation correction condition and we had 
a look and say condition where children literally just looked at the written word, the instructor said it aloud, they repeated it, the instructor said it again, they repeated it again. And then we had a look and spell condition where they did that, but they also wrote down the word. So they didn't decode the word, they just said it aloud and they wrote it down. And then we had our mispronunciation correction condition. Now in mispronunciation correction, as we've sort of talked about, it normally happens in the context of a sentence because you can use sentence context to help you um, work out whether your decoding has been correct, whether you've got to the right word. But because we wanted to compare these training conditions and we really wanted to only make them differ in what we thought were kind of the key ingredients that differed between them. So we wanted to make them similar in a lot of ways. We wanted to have the same amount of instructional time across conditions. We wanted to give them the same exposure to the spoken and written forms of the words so that when we look at our results, we can say, okay, we're sure that the differences in learning are because of these specific differences in instruction. So we did kind of a one-word mispronunciation correction where we showed kids pictures of the words instead of using written sentences. And the other reason we did that is because they were in kindergarten. So they were only in their third term of formal schooling. Um, and in Australia, that means they're about five years old. So they, they weren't particularly good <laughs> at reading sentences. So we used pictures. And then children across all conditions saw pictures of the words. So that was balanced as well. So in the mispronunciation correction condition, what we did was basically we decoded the word for the students. So then we got them to decode it with us. So say the word was young, we would have said, yeah, ow, mm, yang. And then we said to them, is yang a word that you know? And then hopefully they said no. And then we said, okay, can you think of another word that sounds like yang? Just think about it. Don't tell me. And then we'd show the word and the picture, which for the word yang was a picture of a baby and a puppy, things that are young. And then they would say yang. And we'd say, that's right. The word is yang. Say it again, yang. So they had the experience of the decoding. Then they heard the spoken, the spelling pronunciation, the regularized form of the word yang. And then they saw the picture and they heard the real pronunciation of the word. So that was mispronunciation correction. We had 87 kindergarten children from two schools and we the classroom teachers put them into groups and then we assigned the groups to those three training conditions. And then there was one group that didn't receive training straight away. They received it later. So they were our waiting list control group. And we taught children 12 irregular words over three 10-minute sessions. So it wasn't you know, very intense or very long. It was pretty short training. And we chose words that we thought they would know in their spoken vocabulary, like young and heart, but they were unlikely to have seen the written forms. And again, these words are not very irregular because we're talking about kindergartners who don't know very many grapheme phoneme correspondences. So they're words with only kind of one irregular um, grapheme phoneme correspondence. After we did the training, we tested their ability to read the words aloud. And we also got, got them to choose between three different potential spellings of the word. So, for example, for young, we had the correct spelling of the word young. Then we had a one letter different spelling like Y-A-U-N-G. And we had a regular spelling Y-U-N-G. 
And we wanted to see, you know, how detailed their knowledge was of the written form. And they had to just circle the one that they thought was the correct spelling. What we found is that mispronunciation correction and look and spell training overall were more effective than the look and say training and than the no training condition. And for reading aloud, we did find that the children in the look and say condition were slightly better than the ones who didn't get any training. But the mispronunciation correction and look and spell were better again than the look and say conditions. And there weren't any clear differences between mispronunciation correction and look and spell, which was interesting to us because we did think, well, maybe mispronunciation correction will be more effective because it includes the decoding and connecting the word to spoken vocabulary. But actually, spelling, writing the word and the mispronunciation correction conditions were very similar to each other. So from that, what we concluded was that you have to pay attention to the letters within the word. It doesn't necessarily have to be decoding based on our results, but students have to pay attention to the letters within the word. That's really important for learning them. That's much better than just seeing the word and saying it aloud. You do need to process those details of the letters within the words. Now, it's possible that as the children were writing the word, maybe in their heads, they were decoding. We don't know. So that's a question for future research. But what we definitely can conclude is that it's really important for students to actually process the details of the letters within the word, either via decoding or via spelling. I appreciate your overview of the difference between the sight word look and say condition versus the look say spell condition versus Mm -hmm. the, you know, mispronunciation correction condition. And I think some folks will hear about like the picture and kind of dismiss it as, oh, you're not teaching the kid phonics in that case. But I think that's more of a a red herring. The picture is meant to serve as a cue or a stimulus Mm -hmm. to help prompt the word that's already in their listening vocabulary. What you're saying, though, is, you know, the difference between the mispronunciation correction and the look, say, spell condition, Mm -hmm. where you hypothesize why those were superior to the just look and say condition and the weightless Mm -hmm. control is because those were students that by the design of the instruction, they were interacting with the individual phoneme graphing correspondences, mm-hmm. the regular ones and the irregular ones, whether they yeah. were they were spelling it out and they, they had to do it that way or whether it was through the instruction given in the mispronunciation correction procedure, they were interacting with each of them and that, that lends to the efficiency of word learning. So they're not having to learn every single word by this is yeah. just how this word is spelt, but they can take even those less common generalizations and ideally be able to generalize them to other novel words that have those those letter patterns or even yeah. just to cement that word individually more efficiently. Yes. Yeah, so that's an interesting point you raised there because we also tested some words that were not trained, but were similar to the trained words in various ways. And children did not get any better at those. So we were hoping that they were, particularly with something like mispronunciation correction, where you think this might be a strategy that they can learn and apply to other words. But we didn't see that at all. Now, the reason for that might be we just didn't teach these words for long enough. So it was only three 10-minute sessions. So maybe if we did some more sessions, they would have got better at it. The other possibility is that actually the most important reason for doing mispronunciation correction is that it's helping that specific word to get into the child's memory. Now, we don't know. That's a question for future research and something I would really like to look at more is how do we get it to generalize to other words? Because we know that some children do do that 
you know, spontaneously. So that it must be possible. But how do we get that to happen? And one other thing I would say that most people don't know this, but actually there are some studies of sight word instruction of a look, say, cover, write, check method that show that actually sometimes students can generalize words taught that way to other words that are similar in their spelling, almost like an analogy. So it's not actually the case that you never get any generalization from that method. There's not a huge amount of research on it, but there are a few studies of this. And even with children with reading problems, you can get some generalization. But that training was much more intensive than ours. It lasted much longer. And so I think that's probably the key there is maybe we didn't do it for for long enough. I think that points to sort of the design of research of a you know, listener might be hearing, well, it was only 84 kids and it was only over three sessions and think that it's a poor study. But because it was small, it was very tightly designed, very tightly mm-hmm. controlled. And for the research questions you were asking, it, it was the, I think it was a very appropriate study designed to say, well, which group initially learned the words, you know, better. And then future yeah. research can build upon that with larger doses or varying treatment conditions. And that's how research works. It's yeah. better to have smaller studies that are more tightly controlled initially before running in and doing these large studies that are so sloppily designed that you can't pick out correlation (laughs) from causation. Absolutely. We know that to go from what we've learned now to instruction is a lot of steps. This is the beginning point of a whole program of instruction, and it still has instructional implications, but there's still lots of other questions that we need to answer. And so what we really wanted to do with this study was do exactly what you were saying there, which is really try to tease apart in a very controlled way the differences between these types of instruction because nobody had done that before and people make a lot of assumptions. But what I have certainly learned with doing research for a long time now is (laughs) you can make assumptions and you can be fairly sure something's going to work a certain way and then you test it and it is not what you thought. And your own impressions, you know, sometimes you pay attention to certain things and not to other things. It is important to test these things. We have a lot of other questions. How long do you need to teach these words to get generalization? What happens if you teach the words in sentence context? Do different types of words require different types of instruction? I personally think that they do. But these are things that we need to test in future studies. We'll be waiting with bated breath while you and your <laughs> colleagues conduct that research. And I would point out in the SSSR study, it was really rigorous to begin with, but then you did extra things that just add to its status where you had it through open science framework. You we're willing to have the actual lessons that the teachers taught published online. And I'll link to those in the show notes for anyone that's yeah. interesting. I, just with the caveat of it's not a curriculum, right? It's not something just no. to oh, print out to go and teach in your classroom. But yeah. it would be interesting to go and look at the different conditions, be able to see, well, how one one treatment group was taught versus another treatment group was taught. And then based on, you know, maybe some instructional recommendations from Dr. Colin Brander here in a minute, thinking of how that might apply for your classroom, given what we know right now. Hmm. Let's let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked about mispronunciation correction. We've talked about sight word instruction, but you also note that morphology and etymology instruction are important considerations for teaching students to irregular words. One thing is I hear morphology and etymology used almost interchangeably Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes. So will you start off just by defining for us the difference between morphology and etymology and why that difference matters? Yes, so morphology is the structure of words in a language and how word parts fit together. And when I'm talking about word parts, I'm talking about prefixes and bases, or some people call them roots. 
and suffixes. So in a word like redoing, for example, re is a prefix, goes in the front of the word. Do is the base. It's the part that carries the major meaning of the word. And the ing, ing, is a suffix that in this case tells us that it's, you know, a present continuous tense of the word. That's morphology. Now, etymology is very closely related, and it is hard to teach one without the other, but it's not the same. Etymology refers to kind of the history of words and historical relationships between words. So, for example, the word do is connected to the word does, which is actually the base do plus suffix es. And if we get more complicated, we can think about Greek and Latin or Old English or Middle English origins of words. For example, in the word dictionary, the base of that word is actually dict, D-I-C-T, which means something like to speak. And that comes, I believe, from Latin originally. So that's etymology, talking about the history and the origin of words. And like I said, they do fit together a lot, but they're not exactly the same. And sometimes when people talk about, you know, morphology instruction, what they really mean is morphology and etymology instruction. Other people say morphology instruction, and they literally just mean morphology instruction. So it is important to be clear about that, because it makes a big difference to what you actually do with the students. Absolutely. And and etymology being the history of or sort of how a word has evolved over time. I think that's a fascinating area. And like morphology is fun, but I feel it's the etymology of being able to, you know, link together words that have the same root or at least a similar related root back from, you know, that's Norman influenced from France on the 10 hundreds or whatever. That's where the fun comes in. But it is important to remember that those are related, but different things. In teaching students to read or blend irregular words, what considerations come in with morphology and etymology? Yeah. So English is what's known as a morphophonemic language. So even though, you know, decoding gets you most of the way there for a lot of the words, and there are a lot of regular grapheme phoneme correspondences in English, sometimes, in fact, a lot of the time in English spelling, the morphological and etymological structure of the word is preserved in the spelling. And that can cause situations where words are spelled irregularly. So if you think about a word like kicked, the sound on the end is actually a T, but we don't spell it K-I-K-T. We spell it K-I-C-K-E-D. And the reason we spell it that way is because the E-D indicates past tense. And if we see a whole lot of other words with E-Ds in them, we know this is telling us something grammatical about the word. It's past tense. And then we can have, in a more complex sense, I use the example dictionary. In that word, We've got D-I-C-T, the base D-I-C-T, plus a suffix I-O-N, plus a suffix A-R-Y. And if you know that, then it makes the spelling of that word more predictable. Whereas if you try to sound it out, you're going to have some grapheme phoneme correspondences that are not pronounced in their most predictable fashion. So actually teaching about morphology can make some words more predictable and more regular in their spelling for students. That's why it's important, particularly once you move on from monosyllabic words to multisyllabic words, you're going to get multi-morphemic words as well, words that have more than one morpheme in them. And so then teaching students about how that works can make it easier for them to read the words and remember how to spell the words and also can have an influence on vocabulary learning um, as well. So when you were talking about how much fun it is to learn about etymology, if you learn about a base 
dict and where that comes from and all the related words that can potentially be helpful for your vocabulary as well. Absolutely. What I appreciate about that approach is, you know, if we're thinking of Linnea Aries' uh, stages of word reading acquisition, so like orthographic mapping of, it's all about being able to, over time, process larger graphophonemic chunks automatically. And so there comes a point where we can be able to teach students that, you know, ed is a suffix and it's going to say ed and it's going to say t sometimes. It's going to alternate between those two and that teaching that almost as its own individual chunk, its own phonics chunk or graphophonemic chunk that it can be then processed that way to help students with polysyllabic words. And I would recommend mm -hmm. to listeners, if that's interesting, uh, going back a few episodes where I talked with Dr. Devin Kearns mm -hmm. about reading long words. We talked a lot about polymorphemic and, and multisyllabic word reading in that episode. A fantastic episode. So definitely check that one out. But in that instance, if we're uh, learning the suffix, you know, er that says er at the end, mm -hmm. uh, you know, orthographic mapping is, it's really the sounds and the graphemes, right? The phonemes and the graphemes together, but it's also the meaning, being able to yeah. connect that to semantics and context and the actual meaning of it. And so it can be very efficient to teach it that way, because once you know ER means someone who's doing something, well then mm -hmm. baker and firefighter and helper, all yeah. of a sudden those are words that you're turning the key on to be able to understand lots of different words based on that single morpheme that has a very simple letter sound correspondence, but has a consistent meaning as well. Yeah, so it's the intersection of spelling, sound, and meaning. Brings all of those things together. Yeah, which is why I think it's so interesting. So we've covered a lot of ground. Let's maybe start honing in on what this means for instruction. Um, mm -hmm. There's clearly questions still open in the research about the best ways to teach irregular words, about which irregular words deserve to even be taught that way, how generalization works. But I think given the current research field, there are some pretty important instructional recommendations that we can make. Let's start with sight word instruction versus mispronunciation correction. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk around the pros and cons of each of those if when a teacher is considering which approach might be better for his or her students in their context for supporting students with irregular words? Yeah, so with the sight word approach, one thing you have to be very careful of, of course, is you always want to make sure that there is some processing of the grapheme phoneme correspondences or at least the letters within the words when you do it. So either decoding the parts of the words that students can decode or writing the words, you need to do that as well. You can't just get them to say the word and memorize it from just looking at it and saying it. You really want to get them to process the letters within the word. So that's, of course, an important caveat. Another sort of con with sight words is of course you don't want to do too much of it it's meant to be just a small part to supplement phonics and to supplement everything else you're doing just to get students reading some of those really frequent words quickly so they can access more text on their own it's really useful reasonably early on for very very frequent irregular words like to or was or the and some of those words are not so great for mispronunciation correction because if you sound out the, for example, you get uh. I mean, it's not the best spelling pronunciation. It's different to a word like young, where your spelling pronunciation is yang, and there are not that many other words that would be closely related to that. And it really helps you to remember the spelling and it gets you to the, the correct spoken form of the word. 
Another word that doesn't really lend itself to mispronunciation correction is I, as in I see with my eye, like a yeah, it doesn't really, it's not great. So there are some words for which mispronunciation correction is a bit awkward or it just doesn't really work. And so for those words, if they're very frequent, then sight word instruction might be a way that you go with those words. And then once students know a fair few grapheme-phoneme correspondences, they're getting better at decoding, that's when mispronunciation correction could become a really powerful tool to work with. You can get students to do that initially with single words where you provide spoken sentence context if they can't read the sentence context on their own. One thing I would also say is that there is some research to show that if you're trying to get children to learn the written forms of words, then they tend to be able to learn that better when they see the word in isolation than when they see the word in written context. So when they're reading independently and they already have some skills, the sentence context can help them get to the right pronunciation of the word. But when they're learning that word for the first time, then they tend to learn it better when they see the word in isolation. So then if you're doing mispronunciation correction with some irregular words that you really want them to know for the first time, you probably want to do that with just the written word and then with spoken sentence context. But then once you've done that for a little while, you can start getting them to practice that in written sentences and even as they're reading books as a strategy that they can use themselves when they come across a word they don't know in reading books. So mispronunciation correction is pretty flexible. But as I said, there are some words where it's just not really going to help you that much. If those words happen to be very frequent words that you really want the kids to be automatic with that are not particularly easy to decode, then you can use sight word instruction. But always make sure that you are getting them to either decode the parts that they do know or to write it down. So in either case, the goal is to be able to have the students interacting with the individual phoneme graphing correspondences within the word. And then either approach is it's just going to vary by the context and the specific word. So and maybe if I can offer up a couple examples of, let's say that in a small group reading instruction, the students are reading, an individual student's reading a word out loud, and then mm-hmm. they they blend the word regularly, but it's an irregular word. That mm-hmm. might be a more opportune time for a mispronunciation correction mm-hmm. procedure where, you yeah. know, yes, if we were to blend this word, this is what it would sound like, but this word is actually... And say the word or ask if anyone else would be able to generate that word spontaneously. But that might be more apt for something like a mispronunciation correction, uh, Mm. whereas sight word might just be more when it is like a two or a three letter word. And there's just no materials to work with and to just say, well, you know, that word is the right. And and there's a, you know, it's doing the voiced inflection there on the TH and then it's actually the schwa sound on the E. But either way, we're trying to get students to interact with the graphemes and the phoneme graphing relationship. Yes. Yeah, we want that really detailed knowledge of the spelling of the word in their minds so that it's very automatic when they see it again. And also, you know, obviously for their spelling so that they know the letters in the word in the correct order for spelling as well. This has been a thread kind of running in the background that I think would be good to address directly as well. Which words? I think you'd probably agree that when a word just shows up in context, just in the reading that you're doing, then Mm -hmm. that's obviously a candidate that's going to apply for one of those. But 
the yeah. question of whether we should have a scope and sequence of words that we're sort of proactively teaching is an open question, but you've brought up talking about high frequency words and efficiency, you know, several mm-hmm. times and English has over 500,000 standardized words and we don't have time to teach all no. of those <laughs> words individually. And so that's why we teach phonics as a set of generalizations to be able to help leverage being able to blend words that that we haven't previously encountered. So in thinking about, you know, teaching, if there are irregular words that we should be teaching, do you recommend teaching the hundred high frequency words from like a Zeno's list or a Fry list or something like that? Or do you think the research isn't there yet? Or what are your perspectives on teaching high frequency irregular words? So there's one particular study that I'm thinking of by researchers called Jonathan Salty and Janet Bowsden from 2009 that I often come to. So what they did was they had a huge database of words from children's books and adults' books. And what they wanted to know was they had a set of grapheme phoning correspondences and a set of the most frequent words in that database. And they wanted to know sort of if you teach a certain number of grapheme phoning correspondences, how many words in that database do you get? For teaching that specific set. So how much bang for your buck do you get for different numbers of grapheme phoning correspondences and different numbers of sight words? And they found that actually, if you teach the 64 most frequent grapheme phoning correspondences, and then about 89 irregular words, they actually have a set of 100 of the most frequent words, but not all of those are irregular. Then you actually get the vast majority of the words in that database. I think it was 90% of the words. And then if instead you don't teach those sight words and you just keep teaching more and more and more grapheme phoneme correspondences, you don't get that much more bang for your buck. You get diminishing returns. So beyond those 64 grapheme phoneme correspondences, the other ones you teach, they just don't appear in as many words. And so they might not be the best use of your instructional time because you don't get that many more extra words for your instructional time. So as far as I'm aware, that is the best research on this so far. There might be other people out there who prefer different. So they have their set of 100 high-frequency words that they recommend. And that's what I would say is a great place to start with. There are other lists of 100 sight words. They're probably not that different. They're probably very similar because overall the same words will keep coming up again and again and again. But I think that number of around 100 is a pretty good number to go with. So if you were to do something like sight words, I wouldn't do it with more than that set of around 100 words, basically. So So we're talking a very minor component of an ELA block time. We're not recommending teaching lots and lots of words this way. We're saying there's bang for your buck, uh, buck for your cluck uh, (laughs) of of being able to hone in on, well, which words are going to be the most frequent? Are they just going to come encounter with all the time and considering which ones of those to teach uh, as being a more efficient way of approaching it? Yes. Yeah. I would maybe encourage teachers to look at your own, look at your own data and listen to your students. Are they missing words with inflectional endings or prefixes? Are they missing these very high, high frequency words that are coming up again and again and again? Are they missing some of those that are irregular and using your data within your classroom and your readers to be able to say, how do I meet the needs of my students given the data that they have? Yeah. So do you have any final recommendations for practice around either 
sight word approach or mispronunciation correction or a morphology etymology approach or how to set up or design or how an instructional sequence might look like? Just any other general recommendations? Yeah, so there's a lot of debate about how you sort of mix phonics and morphology instruction. And there are some people who think they can't mix But I think they can. And I think there are a lot of people, a lot of good researchers and practitioners out there who think they can. And there's no reason why you couldn't do them together. What I want to make clear is that there's a lot of research on morphology instruction, but actually very, very, very little on how to teach it with beginning readers. So I'm in the process of doing a big study, a big review of morphology instruction at the moment. And we looked at thousands of abstracts and then hundreds of papers. And we found only four on students in in grades K, one or two. So there's really very little on this. So what I'm saying is partially research. It's partially my own experience. And it's partially an understanding of the general research on learning. But I would say that a sensible way to go about it is to think about what's most useful and frequent for the students and teach that. So you want to start by teaching the really frequent prefixes and suffixes like past tense ed, ing, plural s, and you want to teach them explicitly. You know, say this is the suffix, this is how you say it, this is what it means, here's a whole bunch of words that it's in, and then you get students to identify it in words and build their own words with those suffixes, and it really helps to make it visual, for example, using word sums like K-I-S-S plus E-D equals kissed, and then there are certain ways that adding suffixes affect spelling so you'd want to teach that explicitly as well and then once students get pretty good at that then you could start teaching those latin and greek bases but it's always about thinking what is going to be most useful for my students what are they going to see the most what are they going to need to read more often and teaching those in order and starting very explicitly so that's my kind of general recommendation for teaching morphology as far as it goes with combining with phonics. I think you want to make sure that students know a fair few of the most frequent grapheme phoneme correspondences before you start to teach phonics because it just makes it easier to teach the words. You know, for a word like kiss, they can de- decode k e s and then they can add ed or id on the end. Then they've got the tools to figure out that word the next time they see it. And they're also developing tools to figure out other similar words when they see them next. So I guess that's my general recommendation. There's so much more I could say about morphology. It's a very complex area, but in general, thinking about starting with most frequent and getting more complex over time. And if you're thinking about teaching irregular words and teaching any words, really, it's really about making sure that You pay attention to those grapheme phoneme correspondences within the words and the letters within the words and the morphemes within the words and making sure that students really process the details of the word so that when they go off and read on their own, they've already got a whole base of things that they can read fairly easily and automatically. And then they can go on to learn more complex words from their own reading and learn lots of concepts from their own reading And when they can read automatically, they've got so much more mental energy left to process all the complicated meaning that is in the text, which is, again, a whole nother conversation. So, yeah, that's I guess that's my general advice. 
I appreciate your thoughts and joining us on the show and how much of it does circle around what is efficient, what is effective Mm -hmm. and always trying to hone in more on that because we do have students who struggle and we do have students that we need to be able to reach them in ways that are time efficient and being able to sort of mix the ingredients in a way so that we're getting a whole cake at the end is very important. Dr. Daniel Collenbrander, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Final question for you. What makes a good teacher? So I think that's a really hard question. And I think there's more than one way to be a good teacher. But thinking about some of the amazing teachers that I've worked with, I think they tend to have a lot of energy. (laughs) I've noticed the teacher's you know, they're on all the time. So they need so much energy to do their jobs. And they have a genuine care for their students and a real passion for helping others develop and grow. And good teachers are also really excellent communicators, and they have their ability to adapt their explanations to the needs of different students. I think that's really at the core of it, your use of language to bring it to the level where the student is at, and help them to get to the point where they can learn. And also, Good teachers are pretty organized and strategic in their lessons. They always have a goal in mind and they thought about how they're going to teach the content and what they'll do if their first approach doesn't work. And they have to do this, you know, in very complex conditions under a lot of time pressure. So I think passion, organization and energy, basically. Wonderful. Dr. Daniel Kohlenbrander, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. My pleasure. A great big thank you to Dr. Colin Brander for joining us on the show. She is the second international guest that we have had on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I interviewed Dr. Catherine Snow in 2020. It's probably about episode 21, and we talked about the uh, science of literacy and language, solar. And that was a fantastic conversation. A lot of great stuff happening in the reading world from the folks in Australia. My two major takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Colin Brander, you know, really revolve on this idea of effectiveness. One thing that she mentioned was that, uh, you know, in her study where she had three different groups of students learning irregular words, the students who interacted with the word, um, whether it was, you know, via writing or some other method, but the students who interacted with the individual phoneme graphing correspondences within the word fared better than students who just had to look at the word and memorize that that is what the word is. And that really sticks out to me because um, there's always this issue of, of you know, quality versus quantity or, you know, the, the, the quality of an exposure to learning versus the time it takes to deliver that exposure to learning. And so, you know, undoubtedly, it's probably a lot quicker way to just, uh, you know, tell the student this word is yacht. Um, when you just, when you see these letters in this order, it means yacht, than it is to actually go through and look at the individual phoneme graphing correspondences and the ones that are, uh, doing what we would expect them to do and the phoneme graphing correspondences that are doing something different than what we would expect them to do. Um, so that, that makes a big difference to me because I, I do think when we're talking irregular words and especially high frequency irregular words, we want to go for quality. You know, if, if there's, you know, a set of hundred words that's going to take up, comprise, you know, half of written English, that deserves our attention as reading teachers. Our goal should be to unlock text for kids. And if we can unlock half of written English with a hundred easy words or hundred, I guess they're not all easy, but 
a hundred words and a mix of those words are regular and, and irregular and anywhere in between. I think we should, we should do that. And it's important to me that we include the, or support our students in, uh, you know, interacting or getting exposure with the individual phoneme graphing correspondences, you know, within the word. I tend to think about the dosing a lot or, you know, how much of a dose does it take to learn something? Not unlike a, a doctor of medicine might think of, well, how much dose of penicillin is it going to take to support my patient? You know, I, I, I think of, of dosing in a similar way. And, and just like a doctor isn't going to give us, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, a, a 2000 milligrams of penicillin in one day, the, the doctor's more likely to divide that up into smaller chunks over a couple weeks. I think that really matters when we're thinking about teaching irregular words is a consolidated dose. So little slivers over the course of time versus a, uh, or sorry, a distributed dose of, of small doses across a longer period of time rather than a consolidated dose of a single chunk all at, at one time. And, uh, I, I'm really glad to see that there's that doctor, there's Dr. Colenbrander. I know Dr. Devin Kearns, who we had on the show and others are doing this work of how do we support kids in when, when a vast amount of, of words in English are neither completely regular nor completely irregular, but somewhere in between, what does that mean for instruction? And I appreciate, uh, you know, teachers and scholars alike who are willing to embrace some of the nuances of phonics instruction and be able to support our students with, uh, you know, with phonics and be able to be good, accurate, fluent decoders so they can, uh, you know, have bandwidth to make meaning in text and become fluent. So with that, we are going to call it an episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. The best thing you can do for the show is to share it with a colleague. So if you have a first grade teacher down the hall, they thought, hmm, this might interest uh, that teacher, then please send it, send it their way. Uh, you can also leave a review wherever you get this podcast from. But I, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing to help support the readers in your sphere. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.